0: Welcome to our After the Bell podcast, brought to you by Thirsty Scholars Partnership. Our podcast is here to help teachers and tutors. We will be discussing the latest issues in education and sharing top tips for use in the classroom, both face-to-face or virtually. If you work in education and looking to improve or develop your skills, then this podcast is here to help you. Georgie, Director of Learning and Development for the Classroom Partnership. Thirsty Scholars is part of the Classroom Partnership, a collective group of education service providers who have been providing whole school recruitment, professional development and education support in the UK and internationally since 1999. This is a series of podcasts and in today's episode, Helen Morgan, a previous head of school and Andy Bridge, current deputy principal return and join us to discuss Rose and Shine's principles of instruction. And today we're going to be focusing in on step four, the importance of providing models when teaching. Helen and Andy's discussions around Rose and Shine's principles provide anecdotes and tips whilst they share experiences and observations from within the education environment. In previous episodes, we've focused on the first three steps of the principles, and in today, we will unpack step four. But before we discuss step four further, Helen, can you give us a quick recap on what the first three steps are of Rose and Shine's principles of instruction?
1: Hi, Georgie. Hi, Andy. It's great to be here. Um, yeah, I'll do a, a brief summary of the first three steps. So the, the first one that we looked at was daily review, and that was all about um, teachers starting lessons with a really short Um, Sharp review of previous learning. So the goal really is to improve students recall and their ability to remember and also to help students to make connections um, with their learning across subjects, but also beyond their subjects into real life. Um, In lots of ways, it's about helping students to um, build a roadmap of of knowledge um, that they can use um, in their learning And also their lives. Um, Secondly we've got presenting information in small steps which is exactly how it sounds Um, and that's all about teachers breaking um, the learning process down so that it's not overwhelming for students. The key thing with this is that teachers need to plan it carefully but also they need to give students opportunities to practice and apply those steps so that they can do it on their own. Um, Last but not least, um, last week we had a look at asking questions, um, which seems fairly obvious. But in lots of respects, asking questions um, helps teachers to check students' understanding. But in addition to that, we explored how it gives students opportunities to practice um, new information and really consolidate their understanding of that.
0: Thank you so much, Helen, for that recap and um, reflection on those areas. And we've had some really informed discussions around the different steps. um, And certainly it's helped to uh, re-educate me as well uh, in the classroom. And I'll hand over to Andy. Andy, what were your reflections and takeaways from those three steps before we move on?
2: Um, I think for me, it probably just links quite nicely back to, uh, you know, the, the Dylan Williams quote about, all teachers need to improve not because they're not good enough but because they can get better Um, and I think the strategies that we've looked at so far it it promotes mastery, they're they're really um, research informed practical things that teachers can take ownership of and so they've got the agency to kind of lead their own development in the classroom and really focus on mastering um, very specific precise aspects of pedagogy that will improve their teaching overall so I think that they're they're easy for teachers to implement. Uh, they're quite workload efficient generally, and we know that there's a big body of research that sits under them that means they're, they're effective. They're, they're a good thing for us to spend our time on.
0: Thanks so much, Andy. That's a really re- robust uh, recap there. So shall we move on and focus now on the fourth principle of instruction from Rose and Shine, which is around provide models um, and keen to unpack actually In a classroom, what does providing a model actually mean?
1: Okay, Um, I think in terms of kind of providing models, um, you know, for students, um, it probably kind of looks like two different things. So the first thing that it will often look like is presenting students with a model of excellence, an exemplar. Some teachers call it a waggle, what a good one looks like. So it's something that is often pre-prepared but it shows students the standard that they're aiming for. Um, I think the other element of of modelling is almost a live approach which really focuses on unpacking the process of learning for students um, and making in particular um, the methodology that you you need to go through to, to work things out or solve a problem really explicit um, so in lots of respects, when we use models or we use worked examples with students, then what they're able to do is they're able to solve problems faster they're able to figure things out and as a result they develop those really high levels of fluency um and automaticity that we want them to develop um over time Andy, I don't know if you want to to come in there
2: yeah kind of just to build on what you're saying really I think. Um, It links back to, I think it might be in episode two that we mentioned this concept of, as teachers, we're an expert in our subjects and the students are novices. And sometimes we forget that, that they really do need modeling to them. What does excellence in English look like? What does excellence in a six mark science response look like? So it's our opportunity to showcase the highest expectations of where we believe that the students can get to. Um, And I think sometimes there's maybe a bit of a danger that we think oh that you know the students are currently quite weak at this topic i'll show them um an, an example that's a grade three or a grade four and we'll gradually get them there but I kind of encourage you to model excellence go for the perfect answer and then provide the scaffolding and support to get there and i know we're going to look at um scaffolding in more depth in a in another episode but for me that's it's your, your real opportunity to promote scholarship and mastery and exemplary work really set high expectations in your classroom um and then you talk telling about that kind of getting students to see the process of producing a model i just think that's so important like not just focusing on that final product which we're showcasing the excellence but taking students on the journey for how to get there from a blank page to that amazing answer um, is quite overwhelming so taking them through that process is so much kind of So powerful rather than just presenting a a finished article that might seem unachievable on its own.
1: Just again, picking up on what Andy said there about modelling excellence and, you know, that sometimes it might be tempting um, not to do that, to feel like that's out of reach for students. But I think there's a whole body of research that says that there's, you know, more room at the top for everyone. And that was led by Professor Deborah Eyre um, and her work on high performance learning and i think one of the things that we we know so much more about now is is how students learn we know more about the brain we know a lot more about cognitive science and what we know is that the the brain is plastic so intelligence isn't fixed um and that with time and with the right amount of scaffolding and support and with motivation um students can reach those models of excellence and they can achieve that and that what we shouldn't do is really lower expectations we need to really raise expectations and and lift the lid off what they can achieve and modeling and providing worked examples is a really practical way of how teachers can do that in the classroom
0: thank you helen i i think the concept that actually and and you're totally right there's always a lid um, and a target set on each child that says what their aspirational target is, and and having the opportunity to lift that lid and say this is limitless if you're prepared to put the effort in, that's hugely hugely powerful. Um, and you know I've heard that modelling can help students organise information into sort of a, a structure and and keep them sort of that give them the foundations again back to that scaffolding concept as well. Um, It's also important, I think, that the teachers support students in developing their capacity and understanding that self-regulation, explaining why they're going through these processes again, um, back to some of the elements that we talked in episode three. So just sort of now thinking about what that might look like in the classroom, Andy, would you have any kind of great examples of things that you can share Um, of what you've actually witnessed in the classroom around sort of providing models.
2: Yeah, just what you said then about um, linking to that metacognition, I think if you do this really well, when students get into their exam and they've got an unfamiliar um, question, with these strategies they can, if they've got the ability to say, actually, where have I seen this kind of problem before? And what was the method that I went through? Or what was the method that the teacher went through? that just builds a confidence straight away um, and, and that only comes with regular modelling and having the students go through that on a really regular basis. So um, in terms of how this works really well in the classroom, uh, for me visualizers are probably your most powerful tool. Um, I, I'm not particularly technologically brilliant, I, I avoid most technology in my classrooms but uh, visualizer I just think is the most essential piece of kit that any teacher can have. Um, you can get really cheap ones. Um, I think we we recently bought one um, for every staff member in the school that I work at. I think I paid about ninety pounds, ninety nine pounds per visualizer. So, you know, they're not um, they're not a vast expense that's probably unreachable. And I think the impact um, that a visualizer can have in terms of your ability to model that process of writing or to put a student's book under it and annotate work. Um, or for students to come up and showcase their work to the class and the process they went through is invaluable. So I think probably some of the best modelling practice I've seen in classrooms is definitely using visualisers. Helen, have you uh, got other experiences?
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, I totally agree that the visualizer is, is now the essential tool in any classroom. And I think when we, we think about modelling, for students and modelling that process, Um, it's really important to remember that lots of thinking is is invisible, isn't it? It goes on in our head, nobody can see it and as a teacher it's really hard to see what's going on in, in a student's head but for a student to actually have the chance to articulate their thinking and share that process or the teacher to do that for students can, can be really, really powerful. And I think when we think about modelling, um, that process of live modelling, so not always just showing the pre-prepared version, can really support students in working through those steps um, in the classroom. But I think, you know, some teachers might be, be looking at this and going, well, uh, a visualizer might not work in my classroom I'm not doing a subject where there's lots of writing so modelling can take place in different ways so you know if you're a PE teacher um, it might be that you're modelling for students how to do a forehand and I think in, in tennis and if you actually try to describe to somebody without physically showing them how to do a forehand that would be really hard wouldn't it And that process of the physical modelling in a practical subject, whether it be food technology or whether it be PE, um, again, is really valuable. But it's not just showing them. It's the explanation that goes alongside the physical modelling. That's the key. And whether you're doing that under a visualiser or whether you're doing it in a practical subject, um, it doesn't matter. Um, I think one of the key things is about building that bridge um, from what we we describe as dependence, so dependence on the teacher towards independence and modelling and worked examples can really support that.
2: I, I think that's really important, like you said, it's, it's not just um, English or working through maths problems, like you gave examples of practical subjects and um, I'm sure you won't mind me saying it all. I was in a, an art lesson earlier this week, and I, it's something I'd not seen a visualizer be used for before, which I just thought was fantastic. was An art teacher had used the visualizer to film themselves doing a painting, which is something that they couldn't have done live in the classroom because so it would have taken too long. But they'd filmed that with the visualizer, sped up the recording in advance, and then were able to play that to the class so they could see it going from a blank. Um, piece of paper so a finished piece of art and then like you said the important thing was the narration that he was doing over the top of that sped up film of the process and students could gradually see that being built up and I just thought that was such a powerful way of being able to demonstrate in a practical subject.
0: And absolutely how how much more um, encouraging and and engaging is it being able to uh, uh, walk through a session uh, for a student or a learner um, using those kind of tools and um, it's my understanding that modelling isn't just about sort of physical, it's also can be conceptual, and, and often uh, modelling could be a narrative as well. So, talking through sort of a scenario when you're running a play or um, discussing sort of feelings and concepts when you're unpacking a poem
1: or a piece of literature. Would you agree, Helen? Yeah, I mean, I think you made two really interesting points there about. You know, models can be conceptual and particularly when you look at subjects um, like science or maybe geography, often modelling might be through a diagram or an image rather than through words um, in that conceptual kind of approach. I think the other thing that, again, is is interesting when you think about modelling is you said there that it was a, a process and a walkthrough. And actually, if you go to the walkthroughs, texts, um, which lots of teachers are familiar with now, um, it's really important to highlight that the process of modelling and using worked examples, again, isn't just something teachers can wing their way through. There's a very, very clear process with really clearly identifiable steps that can help teachers to do this better, but also that support learning and that process of of working out the method of doing things really quickly for students. So, you know, if you'd have a quick run through what that looks like, um, they identify five steps. Um, So the first step is that the teacher works through um, a full example with the class really narrating the process in a very explicit way Um, and then what they do is they do that again with a different problem or a different question and they draw out the similarities and the differences that sit with that so the students have seen one example the teacher then does it again draws out the similarities and differences and then what they do is they give a partially worked out example so step three is the teacher. Works through the example, but then begins to involve the students. So that might be in the middle or asking them just to finish off at the end. And then step four is what they describe as a cued example. So this is where they start to hand the learning over more to students. So students have to work independently, but the teacher just helps to get them started at the right point. And then at that point, you know, if you take Andy's driving analogy from the previous session, um the teacher's ready to hand over the keys and let the student get into the driving seat and have a go themselves because they've stepped them through that process really carefully. I don't know, Andy, if if you've got any thoughts on that.
2: Yeah, no, I, I think it's um really clear that what you've just explained. It to me the bit that um jumped out at me then as you were talking us through those steps it links um to there's a firstly scholars course george isn't there on independent learning um and i think in that course we we talk about um the body research by fisher and frey and their gradual release model and it's basically that same thing of at the start the teacher kind of having full control and sharing their expertise and moving gradually releasing that control and building the students confidence, giving them some support, gradually reducing that scaffolding until they're a point where they're ready to work independently. So all of this modelling really is leading up to um, students being independent. It's, it's giving them that support that they need to be independent. Um, and the other thing that I, I, as an English teacher in particular, find really powerful with modelling is, yes, to show that perfect example that we talked about. But when we're going through the process of crafting that, demonstrating students the process of drafting and redrafting and actually being able to handwrite on a visualiser and then say actually I've written that sentence and I've realised that I think it could be clearer or I don't think that piece of vocabulary that's selected is the best one so I'm going to cross that out and I'm going to replace it, what synonyms can we think of? Um, I think students seeing that process that even you as the teacher, you don't just write a perfect answer. You craft it, you edit it, you redraft it, and then seeing that process of redrafting um, is really powerful.
1: I think just just building on that as well, you know, um, I think that's a really good example, because what you're starting to do is involve students in that process. Um, but but also kind of for me, um, when when we kind of look at that, getting students involved in the process of, of improving their work, um, we're kind of building the bridge between dependence on the teacher and independence. And often we talk about those two things separately. And what we don't see is the bit that goes in the middle. So the bridge that moves them across. So if you link to the idea of um, the Fisher and Free research that Andy talked about, lots of the teachers who are perhaps listening to this will know that as the I do, we do, you do model. And I think... Often what you see in classrooms where teaching and modelling isn't very effective is you see lots of I do that moves straight to you do. The bit that makes it really powerful for me is when you get the we do right and, you, you know, it becomes an interactive, responsive um, process where students are, are really involved in that.
0: Thank you, Helen. I think yeah, the the response about being interactive and and the actual doing it together as a group in the we do piece, I've seen that missed many, many times before. And I think the concept around sort of making sure that um, there's adequate sequencing and connections are made as you're building that process. Um, so that at the end of the day, when the students on their own and they've become an independent learner and um, develop their own metacognition skills, etc., cetera, that um, they can recall automatically. So like driving the car. Sorry, Helen, go ahead.
1: Yeah, I think just again, building on that, listening to Andy as well. Um, when I was listening to him talk there about, you know, modelling the, the not perfect example. So you go through that process of of redrafting. Um, as teachers we're often experts within our subject area and it's tempting isn't it to show off and just produce the perfect piece every time and that can feel really unattainable for students I think you know again when you when you watch new teachers watching experienced teachers even for them it can feel unattainable how do I get to that point point? And I think one of the things Andy did brilliantly there was was model that sense of uncertainty um, and not having all of the answers. So, you know, that's not the best word there. I'm not sure what the best way to express that might be. Um, Let me just think about that for a moment. Or Is there anybody who can help me is really powerful for students because, you know, we need to kind of teach them that learning is messy um, and that. Perfection, in a sense, is is the enemy of progress, because when everything is perfect, I think we stop learning. So I think for me, Andy modelling that with his students really kind of exemplifies that point about uncertainty and and messy learning being quite important in the modelling process. Crossing things out.
0: Yeah, absolutely, Helen. I think the concept of and um, not every everything's right it's okay to to trial and error um there are also skills that and life skills that we need to be teaching the learners as, as we move through and um obviously that's one of the challenges around sort of we focus in around providing models are there any other challenges that as we listen to this teachers should be aware of
2: and um, for me they we've, we've kind of covered them but just to recap um helen said about moving from the I do to the you do too quickly, I think is a big um, challenge that's then overwhelming for the students or, as we mentioned right at the start, that challenge of thinking if I provide this example, it's it's um, it's too out of reach, it's too academic, it's too impressive. Like, be be that ambitious for your students and then provide the scaffolding to get them up to it and talk them through that process, how you got there and involve them in that, be it kind of challenge that you just making sure you don't lower your expectations.
1: Anything else to add, Helen? I think I think one of the big challenges with with modelling um, for teachers, particularly live modelling, is just you know you've got to be um, confident in that process, but you also need to be competent in that process. So you need to have really thought that through um, before you get there, and and again not just be winging it. I think you know what we want to see through Rose and Shine's principles. Um, is teachers where there are high levels of deliberate practice. There's lots of intentionality that we're doing things by design rather than by default. Um, And if we can get teachers working and thinking in that way, then I think the impact on learning will be huge.
2: I'd agree, definitely. I think um, you kind of picked up there that if your own subject knowledge isn't strong enough, it's then going to be very difficult to model, model something live. Um, so, you know, we can always do more to work on our own subject knowledge and ensure that we really are experts in the topic that we're about to teach.
0: Thank you both. So as we move to close the uh, podcast, is there uh, one key takeaway, Helen, that you would have? I think you probably covered most of it, but uh, if you'd like to recap.
1: I think for, for me, um, you know, if I was to encourage people to to do anything again, we've said that learning is messy. Um, don't always rely on the pre-prepared example. Um, have a go at the live modelling because it's really powerful. And if you've never used a visualizer before, um, find somebody who's got one in their classroom and have a go with it. Um, because w- once you've had one, you'll never look back.
2: <laughs> I, I would um, just say exactly the same. My final tip. If there isn't one in school for you to steal, go and pester your head of department or the finance manager and and get a visualiser board.
0: Andy, I think you're going to get lots of emails. You do realise (laughs) this. Bless you. Thank you so much to Helen and Andy. And uh, I think they've agreed to join me again and I haven't scared them off too much yet. Um, Next week, we will be unpacking and discussing the next steps around Rose and Shine's principles of instruction, which is around guiding student practice. Um, And his research suggests that the most effective teachers give more time for practice um, and that's proven to be directly linked to spending more time using worked examples. So it's building on the concepts that we've discussed today, Um, so we will be discussing how the teachers can ensure learners are forming strong foundations early on. You can pick up our After the Bell podcasts, which are released on a weekly basis, and they provide quick tips and discussions with our experts around all things educational. Hopefully when you drive home or with a glass of wine or a cup of tea or for your focus of the day. You've been listening to After the Bell, brought to you by Thirsty Scholars Partnership. Thank you very much.